Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Matt Barisi, Maitri Basu, Brett Shu, and Scott Bergen. You will now hear Matt Barisi provide introductions. table first and do introductions. Uh, so I just wanted to let you know Juan Shu couldn't make it, so I want that to be down <laughs> for the record. Uh, so let's start with uh, Scott, who is graciously accepted to uh, step in for him. Hi, I'm, I'm Scott Berger. I, I, uh, I'm not Juan, um, but, uh, I was, <laughs> but I was Juan's teacher and I was one of Juan's thesis advisors at George Mason University. I'm on the nonfiction faculty there. Um, and maybe we'll give you one's contact information because I really I had this uh, uh, marked on my schedule um, partly because I know these fine folks, but also because um, what you know there's a lot, a lot they have to say, including one so. But he's in Amsterdam and not here. Um, so I've got two books of narrative history out, and I spend most of my and a third one on the way. And all we're going to do here is outline what we do. Um, talk a little bit about how it connects this idea of uh, research into the, the um, it talks about vanished cultures, but I want to complicate that a little bit. And then what I'd like to do, uh, we, we'd like to do is we really do uh, want to hear from you um, why you're here, but also what your questions are, because this does relate to research. And all of the four people here have done very different kinds of research. Um, my two books are, uh, one came out in two, 2007, another one in 2012. My first book is called Grand Avenues. It's the story of uh, how Washington, D.C. came to be, the people who put it together, the, the man who designed it, Pierre Charles Enfant, the environment in which that happened. I have an undergrad in architecture, and I'm very interested in how, in cities uh, as places, but also in how cities came to be origin stories, in other words. Um, and origin stories of cities are often very, uh, where one sort of culture becomes another kind of culture. I'll jump my second book to talk about the book I'm working on now, and then I'll come back to my second book. As yet untitled, it's contracted. Um, and it's essentially a history of the aftermath of the great Chicago fire, which has all kinds of parallels and analogs to the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. I've, I've taught a class at George Mason for many years on the literature of Hurricane Katrina, where we cover graphic novels and novels and nonfiction, uh, memoir, journalism, all this. And uh, that would partly to sort of fit in with the work I was doing on my own book. And it's got a lot of analogs and parallels to post 9 11, the way we rebuild. Uh, and, and how we rebuild and the attention we give to rebuilding and the, who gets to be in charge of rebuilding and what happens to people uh, who are being re, you know, sort of rebuilt and who stays and who goes. And all that's present in the aftermath of the Great Chicago Fire. Fifteen years after the Great Chicago Fire, uh, two things happened in it, right around 1885, 1886. The first was the, the first skyscraper in America went up, the Home Insurance Building. The first... Uh, you curtain wall building, as they call it. The second was the Haymarket bomb went off, which was very sort of shortly after dynamite had become a, a readily available thing in America. And both of those are fascinating sort of 
very familiar pieces of the urban landscape to us today. We're surrounded by skyscrapers, and, and we've come, become all too familiar with urban violence. And uh, But those things were brand new in 1886, and Chicago was the first place that America ever came to understand either of those phenomena. And the, the period of time between 1871 and 1886 is the t- time period covered, but it's also the story of uh, 200,000 immigrants in the city of Chicago and the uh, struggle between the folks who needed the immigrants to do the work but despised them for, the, for, for, for it in a way, which is also uh, somewhat of a contemporary story. So that's my third book, and, and, and it connects to the origin of all American cities and who lives in them. My second book, to go back to 2012, is a book called 38 Nooses. And the best way to explain it is that in, eight, in the day after Christmas, 1862, 38 Dakota Indians were hanged on a single scaffold in Mankato, Minnesota, uh, at the behest of Abraham Lincoln, um, who also commuted almost 300, commuted is the wrong word, stayed, 300 other death penalties against the Dakota Indians. The original plan was to hang 300-plus Dakota Indians in groups of 40 on a single scaffold over the course of a weekend. Instead, it turned into 38 Dakota Indians. Um, And the book is the story of the Dakota War and the people in the place that came to do that. And and so I'm going to pass this on, but, you know, when I looked at the title of this uh, talk... It's interesting to think about what a vanished culture is because the, the, in all of these books, I hope at least this much is, is clear that, that there's a whole lot of different cultures. Part of the kind of books I write is not a deep dive into one culture, but rather understanding how cultures interact, and uh, sometimes peacefully, but very often not. And I, I write about history. I've written a lot of history. Uh, we've done a lot of history writing for Washington Post and other publications. And in a, in a way, every trip I take to the past, whether there's whatever the continuity between the past and the present, is is a vanished culture. Um, we we are bound to the past, but 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 people lived very different lives in some ways than we did. And so, for instance, the life of a Bohemian immigrant in Chicago in 1871, which I'm trying to become very familiar with is in many ways uh, is, is in many ways is a culture that has vanished and because especially in cities where cities are constantly renewing and reinventing themselves and so I think that all cultures are present from you know from ancient times to present they're also all vanished um, when I hear my parents talk about their child in Waverly Iowa I think that's a vanished culture um, and so I, I that that aspect of the of this kind of discussion, uh, transporting yourself through your research to a different place, whether it's 10 years ago or 1,000 years ago, it's really interesting to me. So I'll pass it to Brett. Thank you, Scott. Hi, my name is Brett Schulte. Um, I teach journalism at the University of Arkansas and spent most of my career working as a journalist and working very much in the present. Most of my stories went as far back into the past as yesterday. And now I'm working on a book about Boystown, Nebraska, which is which most people don't know about anymore, but used to be a very famous place created by a celebrity priest named Father Flanagan. And it is a home for wayward children, originally wayward boys up until 1979 when girls were allowed. But um, it uh, is the story of 
one particular priest who happened, as far as we know, to be a good priest and um, legitimate in his concern for what was happening to children in Omaha, Nebraska. He was an Irish immigrant who came to this country very much endowed with the ideals of Americanism and prosperity and progress. He was a populist progressive um, alongside many of the prairie populists and thought that what was happening to children was um, an attitude of criminalization. And it was also imbued with uh, discrimination against class and race. So he started a home in 1917 that was integrated immediately. He had uh, black children alongside Jewish children, alongside um, Hispanic children. And it was also non-sectarian, even though he was a Catholic priest. He had um, many, many, in fact, most of his uh, children were Protestant in his home. For me, it has been a, a revelation in a lot of ways. Um, because I never believed that 100 years ago was that long ago. I never believed, and he died in 1948, and Boys is still around today. In fact, it's bigger than ever. It has a billion dollars in assets. It's got satellite campuses from coast to coast. It has a national hotline. It's got research hospitals. Nobody knows about it anymore, though. Back in the day, they made a movie about Boys Town in 1938 called Boys Town, and Father Flanagan is played by Spencer Tracy. It won two Academy Awards. Spencer Tracy won one of those Academy Awards, and it and it rocketed Flanagan and his home to fame. Since then, it has sort of fallen off um, the cultural landscape. But what Flanagan did had long-lasting ramifications in terms of the way we thought about kids and child welfare and juvenile justice. Um, he managed to change a culture to a degree of how uh, Americans shaped their attitudes toward children. So when he was first involved in getting kids off the streets, it was because the only place for kids to go who didn't have a home, and there were many, many children who did not have a home, was an orphanage or a jail. And many of them went to jail, and there was no such thing as a juvenile detention center, per se. If they did not have um, any other option, then they were sent to work. So there was an attitude of labor, a culture of labor for kids, and if they were not kept busy in this culture of labor, then they were in a culture of criminality and they were detained essentially until they reached adulthood and, and freed, in which, uh, and then oftentimes they were trained as criminals in jail and continued along that path. So he believed in disrupting these um, sort of American ideas that boys weren't worth anything if they didn't come from the right home. As part of that research, I discovered that there was a much, a much deeper sense of what heritage meant back then and, and a deeper sense of identity as well. Um, Flanagan got cast-offs from various subgroups, various sub-communities throughout the Midwest. You mentioned the Bohemians in New York. There were many, many Bohemian communities throughout the Midwest. And the kids that oftentimes found their way to Boys Town were those kids who were, who were products of fragmented communities where they're no longer able to take care of their own kids. There were strong, strong pockets of um, Irish immigrants, Bohemian immigrants, German immigrants, Italian immigrants throughout the Midwest that kept those ethnic identities that were more prevalent than whiteness. And those identities were preserved even after they came to uh, Boys Town or Father Flanagan's home. As I've been doing research in the archives and gaining access to some of the private files of these kids who have gone through, 
I saw that there's an ethnicity box for every single one. And right now, that ethnicity box might be marked white or black or Hispanic or whatever. Those were marked Bohemian or German or Irish or Scottish or Welsh. And the boys' home for decades essentially operated as a clearinghouse for kids. He brought kids in one door and tried to get them out the other into a home. Those homes that he found for them were often identical ethnic matches for those kids. And he advertised kids based on those ethnic identities. They were essentially a catalog. You could go through and find a nice Italian kid that's going to fit into your nice Italian home, and you can request that Italian kid just like you could request the brown Chevrolet or something like that, or the couch that's going to match the drapes. So anyway, it's been an interesting process for me to discover how cultural identities changed just even in the last century. And I noticed um, that ideas of whiteness were changing through time along with ideas of class. And I think that our current idea of ethnicity really took shape after World War II when the idea of Americanism sort of galvanized because of the unification uh, domestically of the war, that the war effort brought on. And I also think it was, it was uh, exaggerated in rural areas too, which were more isolated, and perhaps in the cities, which are less um, involved in my research, that maybe that phenomenon um, dissolved or changed ideas of culture faster than in the places that Father Flanagan was routinely receiving the kids. So, but you can talk more about that later if you want. Um, so, uh, I'm Moitri, and uh, I'm a PhD student at Middlesex University in London. Um, so, disclaimer, I'm not uh, an author, so I don't write, but um, my thesis, in my thesis, I'm actually looking at the discursive construction of the author figure and the role of that in how a particular narrative is read and how it travels within the transnational public space. Um, the particular book I'm talking about is uh, called Myself Mona Ahmed. It's a photo book by uh, photojournalist Danita Singh. Uh, and it documents the life of Mona, who's a 61-year-old eunuch um, who lives in Delhi. The book is published by the Swiss uh, publisher called Scalo, if you're aware of them. Uh, they do similar projects and features uh, black and white images taken by Dainita over a period of 20 years. This text in the book's, uh, book are emails written by Mona on Dainita's computer addressed to the editor um, of the book. And the captions of the photos, too, are Mona's. And in the front cover of the book, it actually is um, described as um, a look within a secretive, and I'm quoting here, tight-knit world of the eunuchs, and the fact that it enables, the book enables us to see Indian society from its margins. Um, so I found that really interesting in the sense that it kind of pose, poses itself as this um, kind of a look into this invisible world um, and invisible to a Western public. So um, almost in the emails that Mona writes to um, to the editor, who's, who's a Swiss man, um, it's sort of um, like an explication of this world and um, almost a critical view of the mainstream society, um, mainstream Indian society, but also um, kind of an exp explicatory uh, view within this space. Um, also, so just to give you uh, a brief description, Mona was born just before, before 1947, which was the Indian independence, as Ahmed, um, a boy in a lower middle-class Muslim family. And she was the only son in the family, and when she showed disinterest in masculine things, often playing with girls and wearing women's clothing, 
her family were displeased and tried to threaten and often cajole her into acting more masculine. So when she finally met the eunuch Sona and Chaman, she got closer to the world of hijras. Uh, by the way, this is all described by her in uh, the emails that she wrote. Um, and she discovered a sense of belonging with, uh, with the hijras, which, are, which is a word uh, in Hindi for um, eunuchs. And then she ran off to Bombay and got operated and joined the hijra community. And in India, um, if any of you are aware of that, eunuchs live together. Uh, they visit houses where marriages and births take place to sing and dance, and these families give them money. Mona wanted to, <laughs> Mona wanted to stay away from the stereotypical occupation that hijras uh, traditionally have in Indian society, and um, eventually distanced her herself from uh, her eunuch family. And then she moved into a graveyard, her family grave, which she built up as a house, um, I don't think she has a permit for that, but eventually <laughs> in the book, she's built this house and she's coming up with these really innovative and often really harebrained business schemes. And um, I really encourage you to pick up the book if you can. And it's, it's really funny. It's very moving and funny. Um, the thing that I wanted to really look at is also the figure of the author, Dayanita, who um, lives between Delhi and, uh, and she's lived in various places abroad. Um, in her introduction, she says, when you work for the media, which tend to see India only as either exotic or a disaster, a story on eunuchs is a must, along with a story on prostitution, child labor, dowry, deaths, and child marriage. And she also talks about how media-savvy eunuchs are. And she talks about um, you know, the, her first interview with Mona in 1989, I think it was, and the bond that was created within them, between them. And that's something that I look at, and I can talk about it a bit more, about this description of the bond between them, the friendship that lasted 20 years, and how that um, feeds into this narrative that this, um, and, and, and the role that this narrative has in representing the story and also the world of eunuchs in India uh, to the Western public. I'm Matt Barisi, and um, uh, I'm the author of Dead White Guys, and I should just talk a little bit about what that project is. I, um, um, about 10 years ago, I decided to start reading through the great books of the Western world, uh, which was a set that was curated in the 50s by Robert Maiden Hutchins and Mortimer Adler at the University of Chicago. Uh, this became sort of the uh, poster child of the Western canon that's been under attack, I think, for the last uh, 50 years in the Academy. Um, and um, it's everyone from Plato to Karl Marx. They stopped in the 19th century. Um, and I sort of had three challenges when I was doing this book. First of all, I'm, I, I don't have a background in philosophy or political science, so reading these books was a bit of a challenge just by itself. Um, but then um, uh, I also had, had difficulty understanding how alien these cultures actually were. We tend to think of Greece and Rome as sort of us, but without electricity and with spears, and that's not really what it was like at all. Um, and understanding that they were, even within those distinctions in Greece, you're talking about a thousand years, and in Rome you're talking about another thousand years, uh, and there's various periods in these and understanding them, and they give a lot of color to some of the, some of, some of the works, if you understand the context. And I think when I approached these books originally, I approached them from an academic point of view, uh, putting all my modern biases on them and all this. Um, but as I started reading, I realized understanding the context of these books in their historical um, locations. Uh, for instance, Oedipus is a perfect example. Oedipus has a whole modern um, feeling to us or a modern um, connotations to us. 
but in ancient Greece, really, probably it was a commentary on Pericles, the ruler Pericles. Uh, there was a plague in Athens, the, and Oedipus starts with a plague uh, that's been brought on, and Oedipus promises to get to the bottom of this, who's, who's causing this plague. Um, this was an actual historical event in Athens uh, that, that Pericles was responsible for. And so essentially the play is calling Pericles a motherfucker. I mean, that's one of the, one of the things that happens in this play. And the same is true of uh, Lysistrata, which is modern audiences tend to look at Lysistrata uh, and say, well, this is how progressive actually the Greeks were. But in effect, that's not, it's not true at all. It was really, this is, uh, this is the height of um, scandal to suggest that women could be in charge of anything uh, important. And so uh, that play takes on a different dimension as well. And the second problem I had was really dealing with modern intolerance uh, of these texts, which uh, has become increasing, increasingly um, uh, vitriolic, I think, in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Um, understanding, you know, if you ever go and look at, like, a, the greatest books ever written lists, you'll find that most of them uh, end about... The, the, the earliest book that you'll find on that list is really written around 1800. So we have a real modern bias uh, these days, and there's a huge pyramid of thought that happened before the modern industrial period that needs to be understood. And then the, the last challenge I think I encountered there was understanding uh, that these books are not museum pieces. There, there's a huge hiss, right? Yeah. Um, um, and that um, the way that we treat these books now, uh, we tend to look at them as dusty relics and we look at them to understand something that uh, we look at it from a modern perspective and we say, weren't they cute, Didn't these primitive savages? Um, but really, they're very relevant to us today, especially in our current political context. Um, with Trump, the, the, the books that spring to mind right off the top of my head are Book Nine of the Republic, uh, and Machiavelli's Discourses on Libby. These are extremely relevant books. And the editors of the great books of the Western world called this the great conversation. And to them, how they perceived Western culture advancing was, was a series of conversations between great thinkers. And that sense has, I think, been lost in, uh, to a great degree in the modern academy. So with that, I, I, I might start with Scott with a question for you. Is that okay? So, you know, in, in, is it 38 Nooses? That's the name of the book? So in that book, I mean, it must be very difficult to recreate, um, to, to get to the truth of the matter, because uh, this, this, these are people who have either been romanticized or vilified, uh, and how do, you, how do you recreate the truth in that, in that situation? Yeah, well, you, yeah it, it, um, it, it, I guess you sort of, A, treat it as a, I think a lot of you would know this, but you sort of treat that as a, a fool's errand, right? That, in fact, um, I think the hardest thing when you do historical research of any kind is, and I think this comes from whether you're delving into your own past or you're delving into somebody else's past, is I think acknowledging that the veil will always be there. And, I, the, the, you know, I think historians have gotten a lot better at this, uh, and people who write about history have gotten a lot better at this in, in sort of there's always a... Uh, there's always ultimately a curtain over between yourself and those people. It doesn't matter if it was your great-great-great-great-great-grandmother or it doesn't matter if it's another people. And so I think you need to start there and, and, and think, about, uh, think about how far you can get and sort of forgive yourself for not getting as far as you'd like. Um, and, and it starts there. In terms of specifically 
the Dakota, uh, the Dakota Indians, which is about 40, 30 to 40 percent of the book. Um, it, it, part of part of my book is is about uh, recently arrived immigrants taken captive. Part of my book is about um, part of my book is about uh, the the Dakota in a particular spot, and and therefore part of my book is about you know entrenched political interests, and so there's a bun- bunch of different books. But when it comes to so. It, trying to understand the Dakota experience, I mean, I think you do have to start in all cases with how the folks you're researching communicated amongst one another. Meaning, what is the mediation between where I am and where they are? There was no written culture. In the Presbyterian, there was no written Dakota culture in the early 19th century. And the Presbyterian missionaries come in. And and what I'm fascinated by is that whenever missionaries come in into a culture, the first thing they do, and this is true of all colonial efforts ever, is, is before before the guns, before the before the money, before the forts, is they start putting a dictionary together. The, the central you could use the word weapon, you could use the word tool, you can pick whatever word you want to use, but the central sort of effort is always to put a dictionary together and sort of to uh, establish on our part what they're saying. And what's fascinating is that the way this works is that these Presbyterian missionaries listen and listen and listen and record and record, and and they all, you know, have some sort of it's, it's a very linguistic sort of effort in the recording and they're figuring out how to notate and they're figuring out what accents to put in the dictionary. And what's interesting about it is invariably then what they do with that dictionary is they turn right right, right back around to the Dakota and they teach them the dictionary so that they can learn to write, okay? And so I think about that. So I, th- I think about... Um, and then what they do is teach folks to write based on the dictionary you just made. But then they're also interviewing them a whole lot. They're doing, in addition to linguistics, they're doing a whole lot of ethnography. You know, I mean, what I'm fascinated by is the rigorous ethnography that these Presbyterian missionaries uh, conducted on the Dakota. I mean, the books, number of books written about Dakota culture are, there must be 10 written in a period of about 20 years Life among the Dakota, you know, you know, stuff. Life among the Dakota, the Dakota world, all this, and you're reading all all that, and then the newspaper folk, you know, the, you're a journalist, but the newspaper folks flow in, and they interview, and you know, very near to the action was the the sort of the Minnehaha Falls and the Song of Hiawatha, and all of this was written there, and and the journalists are are obsessed with sort of a, a, a sense of the tragic, as you said, Indian, or the sense of the noble Indian, or the sense of the, the savage, unredeemable Indian, or the sense of... They all come to this, and then they'll interview, and then the language, it all comes back to language, and then the language they'll use, they'll interview a Dakota uh, a chieftain, and then they'll write an article in the words of that Dakota chieftain, and the language will be elevated beyond elevated and noble, and it sounds like, you know, Longfellow, Right? And so all this comes to a place, and again, I'm sure most, most of you are aware of this, where we're starting to realize that, that uh, the only way to do this is, is to A, realize that there are still existing Dakota communities, 
meet those folks to drive out to South Dakota and North Dakota and Minnesota, get the stories, and come to a sort of full understanding that the oral history that's being transmitted there is, and this, this of course, is a notion we've sort of come to understand, but that that oral history in no sense is any more dubious or false than any of the written history do. You know? And so you sort of talk, talk to as many people as you can, and what you do is you sort of try to think about, in your writing of narrative history, how do I indicate to people, this is what happened. If, if, if an oral history was delivered and you wrote about it, you'd say, according to the, you know, according to the elder of the tribe, and you'd write that. But then you'd quote a newspaper article, but you wouldn't say anything about the, the stance, biases, the purposes of the newspaper. Our newspaper article is treated as a primary source. And, and so you start, you have two choices. You start either indicating at every step of the way, what were the politics of the newspaper? What, what, what was, what was, who did they know? Who was it owned by? You can start sort of calling into question all the newspapers like, like you sort of implicitly call into question all the oral history, at least this is what's happened. Or the second thing you can do is treat the oral history as much more authoritative. You can treat it as, as authoritative. Uh, and sometimes, I think readers are smart. I think you can treat oral history as the same way you can treat newspapers and let the reader sort of sort it out. You know, you can just say, according to the oral history. And oral histories are fascinating because sometimes they disagree with the historical record. But as Brett can tell you, sometimes newspapers disagree with the histor you know, other historical records as well. And so part of what you do is you think always about um, who's receiving this, what their bias is, and also about the fact that any act of sort of, any act of sort of writing this has to do who controlled the language, the language you're getting, who decided uh, how these words would be presented, who decided, who and you don't, if you were somebody who's inter interviewing Woodrow Wilson, you still have to think about how are they reporting his words the way they are the same they would a Dakota chief? And so I go back to those Presbyterian missionaries and think, who were they? Why were they writing all this down? What power did they get by writing it down? And you go from there. Wow. <clears throat> to, um, to speak to your point about sources, so I've, I've, I'm dealing with a, a multitude of, of sources from primary records held by Boys Town. Some of them... Uh, Confidential, some of them public, and as well as newspaper articles and 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 documents from the census or or, or the feds or state and tax returns or whatever. Um, and there's also official histories that you contend with, right? So, one thing that I came across just recently was I was going back through Boys Town's official history. It has its own coffee table book that it sells out of the bookstore, and you get that. Uh, Father Flanagan narrative and how the whole thing came to happen, and it tells the story of this you know wonderfully progressive priest who saved children of all creeds and color. In one of, one of those pages is a is a story of this famous football game in 1947. Uh, the Boys Town football team, which was um, uh, undefeated, they were a touring uh, powerhouse football team that decimated prep schools from coast to coast, and they were and every game was a fundraiser. Every game, Father Flanagan attended if he could, and there was an announcement, and, and money poured in for these poor orphan boys or wayward boys who were now, you know, on the gridiron and slugging it out for, for the team. And they were awesome because these were tough kids. One of those stories is one of those stories about this game in Miami that's published in the book was of their African American quarterback, Tom Carradine. Tom Carradine was an All American football star. 
and he led them on this undefeated season. He's a tremendous athlete who would later be recruited by the University of Nebraska's football team, which was also a powerhouse. And in the history, they say that in, this, in the culminating game of the season in the Orange Bowl, Boys Town won, led by Tom Carradine, and they crushed this poor Miami prep school like by 56 points or something. So I'm working on the research of this particular game, and I come across a piece of oral history that Boys Town had collected. The Boys Town had collected tons of oral histories that were just sitting there gathering dust. The archivists don't even know what they have in the, in the archive anymore. And I am um, listening to this oral history, and this guy who played in this game says, it's too bad that the African-American players couldn't play. And I thought, what the hell? Tom Carradine led this team to victory. It's in the history book. And then I go to the newspaper records, and I can't find any reference to the black players not playing in this game in the Miami newspaper or in the Omaha paper, but I did find a sort of a football box score, and sure enough, Carradine and the other African-American players were not listed in that box score. And then I kept searching, and I found um, in a newspaper archive one photo with a caption, and it was in the Pittsburgh Courier, which is a historically black newspaper. And in that caption is a picture of one of the Boys Town coaches with the three African-American football players, and it says that um, these boys were withheld from the game because of pressure from the Jim Crow era South and that the Florida Orange Bowl officials would not allow them to play. And that was the only reference to it. And it only happened in the black newspaper. I don't know if Boys Town's official record keepers purposely misled or if they didn't do their own research. But what was most striking to me I thought the most important part was that the Miami Herald and that the Omaha World Herald who covered the game did not, and this is, these are the sins of omissions that you see over and over again in a lot of your research, obliterated this piece of history. They obliterated the history that these players were prevented from playing in the Orange Bowl because of the predominance of, of racism and uh, in the Jim Crow South. And it also indicates that Father Flanagan, as heroic as he was in his efforts to integrate, had his limits too. He did not push that issue. He did not take a stand and say, my, all my players play or none of my players play, which is part of the Father Flanagan narrative. He compromised. He wanted to win that game. That game was going to be it was a huge fundraiser for that school. So the African-American players sat out. Um, so in, in doing research, I've discovered over and over again you know, these numerous problems that have to be navigated. Uh, and then you have to think, next, how do I treat this in the work? Do I, is, is the purpose of the work to debunk narratives created, or is the purpose just to tell the story without acknowledging that, yes, there is this coffee table book that Boys Town puts out that, is, that it contains misinformation about what Father Flanagan did or what these boys played, right? And then that changes the purpose of the story, um, and it changes uh, the storytelling itself, and, and you wonder what, how, how is this, how much of this book is going to be about the storytelling and how much of it is going to be about a correction of the record. Yeah, and just to say one thing really quick. In writing about history, I have found that and this never used to happen. And it's interesting because you were talking about a storyteller who you got a, a person telling the story of another person, which I think is, yeah, I mean, that, that, that to me is as much about, I, it's like Boswell, right? It's like thinking about the person telling the story becomes, 
in many ways is a story. That used to be erased from history. Like, we never used to talk about that this is what supposedly happened, and this were the per person telling the story. And I think the more you find a way to talk about who's telling the story and why, and it's kind of, an, it helps us today think about our own role as storytellers. You know, it, it helps us to think, if you ever write about uh, anybody from think about, okay, I'm one of these storytellers too, and not to be, you know, too cliche about it, but what are they going to say about me in 50 years? You know, what, 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 what's my role going to be? And said, well, this book was written by, you know, this person, and this was, but we de never used to do that. And so one of the first places I go, this is, I'll pass, but one of the first places I like to go is, especially when you're right, you know, doing work on cities, and because every city, the number of newspapers in Chicago, like, I, I don't know the exact figure, 65 newspapers in Chicago in 1870, one kind or another, you know, just an astonishing amount of journalism happening. And the first place I go is to get a history of journalism and the journalism in a town or a place or whatever, and I try to understand. And I don't know about Minnesota, the, all of the Minnesota dotted with news. Every town had a newspaper, and every newspaper was up to something different, you know? So when I hear the New York Times describe themselves as the paper of record, well, I like reading the New York Times. When I would describe the paper of record, there is no paper of record. And it's, it, it, and, and talking about the newspapers, the reporters, as storytellers rather than as journalists, I think goes a long way to start thinking about um, how we get the stories we get. Anyway. So I think that uh, that's one of the things that I'm looking at is how, uh, so, I'm looking at authors who kind of move from being journalists at some point in their careers to being sort of, you know, in quotation, authors, although journalists are authors of their pieces, as we know. But um, yeah, definitely that kind of transition between seeing themselves as working for a particular newspaper to then being responsible for um, a, a book in terms of like, you know, being an author figure. Um, and I think that there is a lot of reflexivity these days in thinking about yourself and your role in representing uh, different stories, different subjects, etc. Um, what I found really interesting is that, um, well, especially when kind of recording, um, well, histories in sort of post contemporary post-colonial, uh, and I use that word, you know, with a lot of... Um, it's a very problematic term, but um, but sort of you know, let's say Indian stories. When talking about the Indian marginalized subjects, the, especially in English, uh, the author is often really removed from the subject as well as the reader. Not just uh, you know, sort of Western readers, but also domestic readers by by you know divisions of class, language, um, geography, etc. And the thing that's really interesting is that the author biographies often sort of try to explain the relationship between, um, you know, explain, establish a sort of close connection between the author and the subject. In this case, for example, um, you know, within the text as well as a paratext, um, there is a lot of discussion about or, um, you know, they've really constructed this friendship between the Anita and Mona. How did it happen? Um, after the interview uh, that Mona did uh, with with Danita, apparently she told 
Danita to throw away the film because she thought that it was going to be published in New York when she did the interview, but then later found out that it was going to be in London and she had family in London. And she didn't want her pictures coming, you know, um, being uh, revealed to her relatives in London. So um, the story goes that that's where the bond was established and Mona grew to trust Danita and almost grew to be a very close friend that Danita saw uh, every time she visited Delhi. And this, so I, I was kind of curious about what that, I mean, why is there, uh, you know, such an emphasis on this emotional relationship between Mona and Danita? And it struck me that that is uh, actually almost like, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's a construction of the authority to tell a particular story. And being authors, um, how do you see sort of, you know, what do, you, do you find yourself sort of justifying your role in telling the story or like establishing those credentials? I feel like I'm always, yes, <laughs> I feel like you're always justifying what you're doing. And sort of like when I wrote this book, I was, I, I was wondering what gave me the right to write the book mm-hmm. in, a, in a way. Um, but also I feel like, Scott, you were talking about um, presenting all the information to the reader, letting the reader make a choice. But even in what you present, you're making a choice. So it's hard when you're—it's um, hard when you're writing a book to sort of—you're—how you're, do you make the decisions that you make? Where do you come down? Because no matter what you do, you're making a choice. I mean, I don't know if you feel that way or not. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, I think about what I'm also interested in is okay. So everybody has read biographies, and I'm also interested in the attention paid in this connects this to authorized versus unauthorized biographies. And I'm always interested in the kind of reader. My first book is kind of a biography. I'm, also kind of, I'm always interested in the kind of reader that looks at, at who, who sees authorized biography on a cover or something, and, and that's a good thing, versus the other kind of reader that sees authorized biography and mistrusts it. And you all know whether authorized or unauthorized make you trust it or mistrust it. And I think... Um, you know, Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, right? You know, full access, you know, complete cooperation of this, you know, you know of Steve Jobs himself and, and, and I think, and I think they're selling a certain thing there. They're selling a certain thing, but all writing about history, people in history, is an unauthorized biography, right? I mean, and so most of what we read is unauthorized. And then I think about a little bit about what we're talking about here, which is like, then I think about but there's this third category that fascinates me to no end, which is neither authorized nor authorized, but the intimate biography. But the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas is the one that comes to mind immediately. I mean, talk about an intimate biography, and I think about, I think about, um, I mean, what gave Gertrude Stein the right to do that? You know, like, like, and and so. Um, each kind of delving into this, into somebody else's life, sort of just because you're super close to somebody, and just because you're sort of writing, doesn't mean what you're writing is any more sort of accurate and factual or or trustworthy. And so again, it comes back to, I think the question is, how do we signal the reader? And it sounds obvious. Do we signal to the reader our own position? Sure. But for most of the history of writing history, that was 
that wasn't even part of the picture. I don't signal to the reader who, who you are, and I don't see it. And, and I find this to be an enormously interesting, you know, development, is we, we research the biographer or the person writing about the person as much as we, we research, the, you know, you've got three levels going on there, okay? And so I, anyway, so when I think about that, I, I like to think a lot about my relationship to the subject, but my relationship to the other people writing about the subject. I'm kin with all these people. I'm just, I came along 100 years later. But I'm, I'm not kin to the Dakota chieftain that's being written about. I have to think about my own position that. But I am kin to the reporter who, 20 years after these events, sits down with them and hears the story and writes it down. And that's the person I feel connected to. And I think, okay, I have to think about what that means about me, you know? I think that, uh, sorry. Um, which is that uh, when writing, writing about contemporary subjects, I think that uh, most of the authors, and I interviewed some of them, felt that, you know, in a way it's true that they're in competition with other writers and other stories. And often, um, for example, they would use their biography or their position within um, a particular, like, um, you know, social group to justify uh, their right to tell the story or why their narrative is truer. So um, I think there was, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the work called A Free Man, written by Aman Sethi, um, about a casual uh, laborer in Delhi as well. Um, and and he, he, he kind of wrote about Delhi um, slums, and I think it was also around the same time, um, there was also uh, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, so, um, and it was written by an American journalist. And I remember in one of the one, one of my interviews, he mentioned that at the end of the day, you know, um, she didn't speak the language and therefore was operating through a translator. So the fact that you speak the language then becomes this kind of, uh, you know, a, a sort of signal that you you can get to. I mean, I think everyone acknowledges that there is no way to tell the story exactly how the subject would want would do if they had the power, um, whether institutionally or, you know, class-wise um, to tell their own story, but the emphasis seems to be really to kind of capture a true voice, an authentic voice, and uh, yeah, I think like, writers do kind of have that sense of competition about um, about them. So yeah, in, in a way, it's kind of kinship, but also like positioning yourself in the field. Um, I love that. I, I love that idea of thinking of competition between writers because you, two people write, you know, about the yeah. same subject, and we are always, you know, you, 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 they talk, you know, the influence of everything has come by, but you're also always in some kind of competition. Why would you write a book about anything if you felt that the person who came before you mm -hmm. had done it perfectly? Right. You wouldn't do it. In fact, for, forget nonfiction. Pretending you're writing about fiction about divorce. If you read the perfect book about divorce, you wouldn't write your book about divorce. You, you may not consciously acknowledge it sometimes, but you're always in competition about the way it was represented there. Something was incorrect, or not incorrectly, but something wasn't represented there that needs to be represented. And I love that idea of what I'm representing is. And so I never quite thought of it that way, but I was in competition with every other book that had been written about every one of these subjects. And I feel it very keenly. You know, the Chicago Fire book is... The competition I feel that I'm deeply involved in is the story of the city burning. Stuff happens, right? I mean, I'm not trying to minimize it, but 
disasters are they're going to go on forever. And I thought, what we need to be talking about is what we do in the wake of disaster. You know, what we do in the... I mean, I'm more interested in the story of what happened to the Titanic survivors in many ways than the Titanic. That story's never been told. Nobody's ever written a book about that. And then you think about, okay, well, of course we like, like to watch the ship go down. We best-selling, best move, best money-making movie of all time, Titanic. We love to watch the ship go down. But the, is that really a story? Or is the story... And So all I'm saying is I find myself in competition, and you do, and you fight, you know, how are these people's lives going to be represented? Uh, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.com. Dot org.